5. Tea chipmunks. Hibernate in burrows deep enough to escape the cold, and either feed on a stored supply of food, or, like the snakes and crayfish, do not feed at all. Others, as the rabbits, field mice, and squirrels, are more or less active and forage freely on whatever they can find, eating many things which in summer they would spurn with scorn. To this class belongs that intelligent but injurious animal the musquash or muskrat. Those which inhabit the rivers and larger streams live in burrows dug deep beneath the banks, but those inhabiting sluggish streams and ponds usually construct a conical winter house about three feet in diameter and from two to three feet in height. These houses are made of coarse grasses, rushes, branches of shrubs, and small pieces of driftwood, closely cemented together with stiff, clay mud. The top of the house usually projects two feet or more above the water, and when sun-dried is so strong as to easily sustain the weight of a man. The walls are generally about six inches in thickness and are very difficult to pull to pieces. Within is a single circular chamber with a shelf or floor of mud, sticks, leaves and grass, ingeniously supported on coarse sticks stuck endwise into the mud after the manner of piles. In the center of this floor is an opening, from which six or eight diverging paths lead to the open water without so that the little artisan has many avenues of escape in case of danger. These houses are often repaired and used for several winters in succession, but are vacated on the approach of spring. During the summer the muskrat island in the main, a herbivorous animal, but in winter necessity develops its carnivorous propensities and it feeds then mainly upon the mussels and crayfish which it can dig from the bottom of the pond or stream in which its house is built. The bats pass the winter in caves, the edicts of houses, and barns or in hollow trees, hanging downward by their hind claws, motionless for months they thus remain, and those in the more exposed situations are, doubtless, frozen solid, yet, in time, their blood flows freely once again and they become as expert on the wing as though the year were one continual jubilee of insect chasing, and frost and snow were to them unknown, all the carnivora, or flesh eaters, as the mink, skunk, opossum, fox, and wolf, are in winter active and voracious, needing much food to supply the necessary animal heat of the body, hence they are then much more bold than in summer, and the hen yard or sheep pen of the farmer is too frequently called upon to supply this extra demand, but of all our animals it seems to me the birds have solved the winter problem best, possessing an enduring power of flight and a knowledge of a southern sunny sky, beneath which food is plentiful, they alone of all the living forms about us have little fear of the coming of the frost, True. Fifty or more species remain in each of the northern states during the cold season, but they are hardy birds which feed mainly upon seeds, as the snowbird and song sparrow, on flesh, as the hawks and crows, or on burrowing insects, as the nuthatches and woodpeckers. Such are some of the solutions to the problem of life in winter which the plants and animals about us have worked out, such some of the forms which they undergo, the places which they inhabit to the thinking mind a knowledge of these solutions but begets other and greater problems, such as how can a living thing be frozen solid for weeks and yet retain vitality enough to fully recover, how can a warm-blooded animal sleep for months without partaking of food or drink, and greater than either, what is that which we call life, I hold in my hand two objects, similar in size, color, organs, everything twins from the same mother in all outward respects. One pulsates and throbs with that which we call, life. It possesses heat, bodily motion, animal power. The other is cold, motionless, pulseless, throbless a thing of clay. What is that, life, which the one possesses and the other lacks? Ah, there's the rub. 
with the wisest of men we can only answer, Quien Sabe, who knows, copyright by Hogan, Mifflin and Company, how alert and vigilant the birds are, even when absorbed in building their nests, in an open space in the woods, I see a pair of cedar birds collecting moss from the top of a dead tree, following the direction in which they fly, I soon discover the nest placed in the fork of a small soft maple, which stands amid a thick growth of wild cherry trees and young beeches, carefully concealing myself beneath it, without any fear that the workman will hit me with a chip or let fall a tool, I await the return of the busy pair, presently I hear the well-known note, and the female sweeps down and settles unsuspectingly into the half-finished structure, hardly have her wings rested, before her eye has penetrated my screen, and with a hurried movement of alarm, she darts away, in a moment, the male, with a tuft of wool in his beak for there is a sheep pasture near, joins her, and the to reconnoiter the premises from the surrounding bushes, with their beaks still loaded, they move around with a frightened look, and refuse to approach the nest till I had moved off and lain down behind a log, then one of them ventures to alight upon the nest, but, still suspecting all is not right, quickly darts away again, then they both together come, and after much peeping and spying about, and apparently much anxious consultation, cautiously proceed to a work, in less than half an hour, it would seem that wool enough has been brought to supply the whole family, real and prospective, with socks, if needles and fingers could be found fine enough to knit it up, in less than a week, the female has begun to deposit her eggs, four of them in as many days, white tinged with purple, with black spots on the larger end, after two weeks of incubation, the young are out, excepting the American goldfinch, this bird builds later in the spring than any other, its nest, in our northern climate, seldom being undertaken till July, as with the goldfinch, the reason island probably, that suitable food for the young cannot be had at an earlier period, like most of our common species, as the robin, sparrow, bluebird, peely, wren, etc. This bird sometimes seeks wild, remote localities in which to rear its young, that others, takes up its abode near that of man, I knew a pair of cedar birds, one season, to build in an apple tree, the branches of which rubbed against the house, for a day or two before the first straw was laid, I noticed the pair carefully exploring every branch of the tree the female taking the lead, the male following her with an anxious note and look, it was evident that the wife was to have her choice this time, and, like one who thoroughly knew her mind, she was proceeding to take it, Finally the site was chosen upon a high branch extending over one low wing of the house. Mutual congratulations and caresses followed, when both birds flew away in quest of building material. That most freely used is a sort of cotton-bearing plant, which grows in old, worn-out fields. The nest is large for the size of the bird, and very soft. It is in every respect a first-class domicile. On another occasion, while walking, or rather sauntering, in the woods for I have discovered that one cannot run and read the book of nature. My attention was arrested by a dull hammering, evidently but a few rods off. I said to myself, someone is building a house. From what I had previously seen, I suspected the builder to be a red-headed woodpecker, in the top of a dead oak stub nearby. Moving cautiously in that direction, I perceived a round hole, about the size of that made by an inch and a half auger, near the top of the decayed trunk and the white chips of the workmen strewing the ground beneath, when but a few paces from the tree, my foot pressed upon a dry twig, which gave forth a very slight snap, instantly the hammering ceased, and a scarlet head appeared at the door, though I remained perfectly motionless, 
forbearing even to wink till my eye smarted, the bird refused to go on with his work, but flew quietly off to a neighboring tree. What surprised me was, that amid his busy occupation down in the heart of the old tree he should have been so alert and watchful as to catch the slightest sound from without. The woodpeckers all build in about the same manner, excavating the trunk or branch of a decayed tree, and depositing the eggs on the fine fragments of wood at the bottom of the cavity, though the nest is not especially an artistic work, requiring strength rather than skill, yet the eggs and the young of few other birds are so completely housed from the elements, or protected from their natural enemies the jays, crows, hawks, and owls, a tree with a natural cavity is never selected, but one which has been dead just long enough to have become soft and brittle throughout. The bird goes in horizontally for a few inches, making a hole perfectly round and smooth and adapted to his size, then turns downward, gradually enlarging the hole, as he proceeds, to the depth of 10, 15, 20 inches, according to the softness of the tree and the urgency of the mother bird to deposit her eggs, while excavating, male and female work alternately. After one has been engaged 15 or 20 minutes, drilling, and carrying out chips, it ascends to an upper limb, utters a loud call or two, when its mate soon appears, and, alighting near it on the branch, the pair chatter and caress a moment, then the fresh one enters the cavity and the other flies away. A few days since, I climbed up to the nest of the downy woodpecker, in the decayed top of a sugar maple, for better protection against driving rains. The hole which was rather more than an inch in diameter, was made immediately beneath a branch which stretched out almost horizontally from the main stem. It appeared merely a deeper shadow upon the dark and mottled surface of the bark with which the branches were covered, and could not be detected by the eye until one was within a few feet of it. The young chirped vociferously as I approached the nest, thinking it was the old one with food, but the clamor suddenly ceased as I put my hand on that part of the trunk in which they were concealed the unusual jarring and rustling alarming them into silence. The cavity, which was about 15 inches deep, was gourd-shaped, and was wrought with great skill and regularity. The walls were quite smooth and clean and new. I shall never forget the circumstance of observing a pair of yellow-bellied woodpeckers, the most rare and secluded, and, next to the red-headed, the most beautiful species found in our woods, breeding in an old, truncated beach in the Beaverkill Mountains, an offshoot of the Catskills. We had been traveling, three of us, all day in search of a trout lake, which lay far in among the mountains, had twice lost our course in the trackless forest, and, weary and hungry, had sat down to rest upon a decayed log, the chattering of the young, and the passing to and fro of the parent birds, soon arrested my attention, the entrance to the nest was on the east side of the tree, about twenty-five feet from the ground, at intervals of scarcely a minute, the old birds, one after another, would light upon the edge of the hole with a grub or worm in their beaks, then each in turn would make a bow or two, cast an eye quickly around, and by a single movement place itself in the neck of the passage, here it would pause a moment, as if to determine in which expectant mouth to place the morsel, and then disappear within, in about half a minute, during which time the chattering of the young gradually subsided, the bird would again emerge, but this time bearing in its beak the order of one of the helpless family, flying away very slowly with head lowered and extended, as if anxious to hold the offensive object as far from its plumage as possible. The bird dropped the unsavory morsel in the course of a few yards, and, alighting on a tree, wiped its bill on the bark and moss. This seemed to be the order all day, carrying in and carrying out, 
I watched the birds for an hour, while my companions were taking their turn in exploring the lay of the land around us, and noted no variation in the program. It would be curious to know if the young are fed and waited upon in regular order, and how, amid the darkness and the crowded state of the apartment, the matter is so neatly managed, but ornithologists are all silent upon the subject. This practice of the birds is not so uncommon as it might at first seem. It island indeed, almost an invariable rule among all land birds, with woodpeckers and kindred species, and with birds that burrow in the ground, as bank swallows, kingfishers, etc. It is a necessity. The accumulation of the excrement in the nest would prove most fatal to the young, but even among birds that neither bore nor mine, but which build a shallow nest on the branch of a tree or upon the ground, as the robin, the finches, the bundings, etc. The order of the young is removed to a distance by the parent bird, when the robin is seen going away from its brood with a slow, heavy flight, entirely different from its manner a moment before on approaching the nest with a cherry or a worm, it is certain to be engaged in this office, one may observe the social sparrow, when feeding its young, pause a moment after the worm has been given, and hop around on the brink of the nest, observing the movements within. The instinct of cleanliness no doubt prompts the action in all cases, though the disposition to secrecy or concealment may not be unmixed with it. The swallows form an exception to the rule. The excrement being voided by the young over the brink of the nest, they form an exception, also, to the rule of secrecy, aiming not so much to conceal the nest as to render it inaccessible. Other exceptions are the pigeons, hawks, and waterfowls, but to a return. Having a good chance to note the color and markings of the woodpeckers as they pass in and out at the opening of the nest, I saw that Audubon had made a mistake in figuring or describing the female of this species with the red spot upon the head. I have seen a number of pairs of them, and in no instance have I seen the mother bird marked with red. The male was in full plumage, and I reluctantly shot him for a specimen, passing by the place again next day. I paused a moment to note how matters stood. I confess it was not without some compunctions that I heard the cries of the young birds, and saw the widowed mother, her cares now deviled, hastening to and fro in the solitary woods, she would occasionally pause expectantly on the trunk of a tree, and utter a loud call, it usually happens when the male of any species is killed during the breeding season, that the female soon procures another mate, there are, most likely, always a few unmatted birds of both sexes, within a given range and through these the broken links may be restored. Audubon or Wilson, I forgot which, tells a pair of fish hawks, or ospreys, that built their nest in an ancient oak. The male was so zealous in the defense of the young that it actually attacked with beak and claw a person who attempted to climb into his nest, putting his face and eyes in great jeopardy, arming himself with a heavy club. The climber fell the gallant bird to the ground and killed him. In the course of a few days, the female had procured another mate. But naturally enough the stepfather showed none of the spirit and pluck in defense of the brood that had been displayed by the original parent. When danger was nigh, he was seen afar off, sailing around in placid in concern. It is generally known that when either the wild turkey or domestic turkey begins to allay, and afterwards to sit and rear the brood, she secludes herself from the male, who then, very sensibly, herds with others of his sex, and betakes himself to haunts of his own till male and female old and young, meet again on common ground, late in the fall, but rob the sitting bird of her eggs, or destroy her tender young, and she immediately sets out in quest of a male, who is no laggard when he hears her call, the same is true of ducks and other aquatic fowls, 
the propagating instinct is strong, and surmounts all ordinary difficulties. No doubt the widowhood I had caused in the case of the woodpeckers was of short duration, and chance brought, or the widow drummed up, some forlorn male, who was not dismayed by the prospect of having a large family of half-grown birds on his hands at the outset. I have seen a fine cock robin paying assiduous addresses to a female bird as late as the middle of July, and I had no doubt that his intentions were honorable. I watched the pair for half an hour. The hen, I took it, was in the market for the second time that season, but the cock, from his bright, and faded plumage, looked like a new arrival. The hen resented every advance of the male. In vain he strutted around her and displayed his fine feathers, every now and then she would make at him in a most spiteful manner. He followed her to the ground, poured into her ear a fine, half-suppressed warble, offered her a word, flew back to the tree again with a great spread of plumage, hopped around her on the branches, chirped, chattered, flew gallantly at an intruder, and was back in an instant at her side. No use. She cut him short at every turn. The denouement I cannot relate, as the artful bird, followed by her ardent sweeter, soon flew away beyond my sight. It may not be rash to conclude however that she held out no longer than was prudent. On the whole, there seems to be a system of women's rights prevailing among the birds, which, contemplated from the standpoint of the male, is quite admirable. In almost all cases of joint interest, the female bird is the most active. She determines the site of the nest, and is usually the most absorbed in its construction. Generally, she is more vigilant in caring for the young, and manifests the most concern when danger threatens. Hour after hour I have seen the mother of a brood of blue grosbeaks pass from the nearest meadow to the tree that held her nest, with a cricket or grasshopper in her bill, while her better-dressed half was singing serenely on a distant tree or pursuing his pleasure amid the branches. Yet among the majority of our songbirds, the male is most conspicuous both by his color and manners and by his song, and is to that extent a shield to the female. It is thought that the female is humbler clad for her better concealment during incubation but this is not satisfactory, as in some cases she is relieved from time to time by the male. In the case of the domestic dove, for instance, promptly at midday the cock is found upon the nest. I should say that the dull or neutral tints of the female were a provision of nature for her greater safety at all times, as her life is far more precious to the species than that of the male. The indispensable office of the male reduces itself to a little more than a moment of time, while that of his mate extends over days and weeks if not months, in migrating northward, the males precede the females by eight or ten days, returning in the fall, the females and young precede the males by about the same time, after the woodpeckers have abandoned their nests, or rather chambers, which they do after the first season, their cousins, the nuthatches, chickadees, and brown creepers, fall heir to them, these birds, especially the creepers and nuthatches, have many of the habits of the piscity but lack their powers of bill, and so are enabled to excavate a nest for themselves. Their habitation, therefore, is always second-hand, but each species carries in some soft material of various kinds, or, in other words, furnishes the tenement to its liking. The chickadee arranges in the bottom of the cavity a little mat of a light, felt-like substance, which looks as if it came from the headers, but which is probably the work of numerous worms or caterpillars. On the soft lining the female deposits six white eggs. I recently discovered one of these nests in a most interesting situation. The tree containing it, a variety of the wild cherry, stood upon the brink of the bald summit of a high mountain. Gray, 
time-worn rocks lay piled loosely about, or overtoppled the just visible by ways of the red fox. The trees had a half-scared look, and that indescribable wildness which lurks about the tops of all remote mountains possessed the place. Standing there, I looked down upon the back of the red-tailed hawk as he flew out over the earth beneath me. Following him, my eye also took in farms, and settlements, and villages, and other mountain ranges that grew blue in the distance. The parent birds attracted my attention by appearing with food in their beaks, and by seeming much put out, yet so wary were they of revealing the locality of their brood, or even of the precise tree that held them, that I lurked around over an hour without gaining a point on them. Finally a bright and curious boy who accompanied me secreted himself under a low, projecting rock close to the tree in which we supposed the nest to be, while I moved off around the mountainside. It was not long before the youth had their secret. The tree, which was low and wide branching, and overrun with lichens, appeared at a cursory glance to contain not one dry or decayed limb, yet there was one a few feet long, in which, when my eyes were piloted thither, I detected a small round orifice. As my weight began to shake the branches, the consternation of both old and young was great. The stump of the limb that held the nest was about three inches thick, and at the bottom of the tunnel was excavated quite to the bark. With my thumb I broke in the thin wall, and the young, which were full-fledged, looked out upon the world for the first time. Presently one of them, with a significant chirp, as much as to say, it is time we were out of this, began to climb up toward the proper entrance. Placing himself in the hole, he looked around without manifesting any surprise at the grand scene that lay spread out before him. He was taking his bearings and determining how far he could trust the power of his untried wings to take him out of harm's way. After a moment's pause, with a loud chirp, he launched out, and made tolerable headway. The others rapidly followed, each one, as it started upward, from a sudden impulse, contemptuously saluted the abandoned nest with its excrement though generally regular in their habits and instincts, yet the birds sometimes seem as whimsical and capricious as superior beings, one is not safe, for instance, in making any absolute assertion as to their place or mode of building, ground builders often get up into a bush, and tree builders sometimes get upon the ground or into a tussock of grass, the song sparrow, which is a ground builder, has been known to build in the knot hole of a fence rail, and a chimney swallow once got tired of soot and smoke, and fastened its nest on a rafter in a hay barn. A friend tells me of a pair of barn swallows which, taking a fanciful turn, saddled their nest in the loop of a rope that was pendant from a peg in the peak, and liked it so well that they repeated the experiment next year. I had known the social sparrow, or hair bird, to build under a shed, in a tuft of hay that hung down, through the loose flooring, from the mow above. It usually contents itself with a half a dozen stalks of dry grass and a few long hairs from a cow's tail, loosely arranged on the branch of an apple tree. The ruffling swallow builds in the wall and in old stone heaps, and I have seen the robin build in similar localities. Others have found its nest in old, abandoned wells. The house wren will build in anything that has an accessible cavity, from an old boot to a bombshell. A pair of them once persisted in building their nest in the top of a certain pump tree getting in through the opening above the handle, the pump being in daily use. The nest was destroyed more than a score of times. This jealous little wretch has the wise forethought, when the box in which he builds contains two compartments, to fill up one of them, so as to avoid the risk of troublesome neighbors. The less skillful builders sometimes depart from their usual habit, and take up with the abandoned nest of some other species. 
The blue jay now and then lays in an old crow's nest or cuckoo's nest. The crow blackbird, seized with a fit of indolence, drops its eggs in the cavity of a decayed branch. I heard of a cuckoo that dispossessed a robin of its nest, of another that set a blue jay adrift. Large, loose structures, like the nests of the osprey and certain of the herons, have been found with half a dozen nests of the blackbird set in the outer edges, like so many parasites, or, as Audubon says, like the retainers about the rude court of a feudal baron, the same birds breeding in a southern climate construct far less elaborate nests than when breeding in a northern climate. Certain species of waterfowl that abandon their eggs to the sand and the sun in the warmer zones, build a nest and sit in the usual way in Labrador, in Georgia. The Baltimore Oriole places its nest upon the north side of the tree, in the Midland Eastern States. It fixes it upon the south or east side, and makes it much thicker and warmer. I have seen one from the south that had some kind of coarse reed or sedge woven into it, giving it an open-work appearance, like a basket. Very few species use the same material uniformly. I have seen the nest of the robin quite destitute of mud. In one instance, it was composed mainly of long, black horse hairs, arranged in a circular manner, with a lining of fine yellow grass, the whole presenting quite a novel appearance. In another case, the nest was chiefly constructed of a species of rock moss. The nest for the second brood during the same season is often a mere makeshift. The haste of the female to deposit her eggs as the season advances seems very great, and the structure is apt to be prematurely finished. I was recently reminded of this fact by happening, about the last of July, to meet with several nests of the wood or bush sparrow in a remote blackberry field. The nests with eggs were far less elaborate and compact than the earlier nests, from which the young had flown, day after day, as I go to a certain piece of woods. I observe a male indigo bird sitting on precisely the same part of a high branch, and singing in his most vivacious style. As I approach, he ceases to sing, and, flirting his tail right and left with marked emphasis, chirps sharply. In a low bush nearby, I come upon the object of his solicitude, a thick, compact nest, composed largely of dry leaves and fine grass, in which a plain brown bird is sitting upon four pale blue eggs. The wonder island that a bird will leave the apparent security of the treetops, to place its nest in the way of the many dangers that walk and crawl upon the ground. There, far out of reach, sings the bird, here, not three feet from the ground, are its eggs or helpless young. The true phylum birds are the greatest enemies of birds, and it is with reference to this fact that many of the smaller species build, perhaps the greatest proportion of birds breed along highways. I had known the rough grouse to come out of a dense wood and make its nest at the root of a tree within ten paces of the road, where, no doubt, hawks and crows, as well as skunks and foxes, would be less liable to find it out. Traversing remote mountain roads through dense woods, I have repeatedly seen the beery, or Wilson's thrush, sitting upon her nest, so near me that I could almost take her from it by stretching out my hand. Birds of prey show none of this confidence in man, and, when locating their nests, avoid rather than seek his haunts, in a certain locality in the interior of New York, I know, every season, where I am sure to find a nest or two of the slate-colored snowbird, it is under the brink of a low, mossy bank, so near the highway that it could be reached from a passing vehicle with a whip, every horse or wagon or foot passenger disturbs the sitting bird, she awaits the near approach of a sound of feet or wheels, and then darts quickly across the road, barely clearing the ground, and disappears amid the bushes on the opposite side.
in the trees that line one of the main streets and fashionable drives leading out of Washington City, and less than half a mile from the boundary, I have counted the nests of five different species at one time, and that without any very close scrutiny of the foliage, while in many acres of woodland, half a mile off, I searched in vain for a single nest. Among the five that interested me most was that of a blue grosbeak. Here this bird, which, according to Audubon's observations, in Louisiana is shy and recluse, affecting remote marshes and the borders of large ponds of stagnant water, had placed its nest in the lowest twig of the lowest branch of a large sycamore, immediately over a great thoroughfare, and so near the ground that a person standing in a cart or sitting on a horse could have reached it with his hand. The nest was composed mainly of fragments of newspaper and stalks of grass, and, though so low, was remarkably well concealed by one of the peculiar clusters of twigs and leaves which characterize this tree. The nest contained young when I discovered it, and though the parent birds were much annoyed by my loitering about beneath the tree, they paid little attention to the stream of vehicles that was constantly passing. It is a wonder to me when the birds could have built it, for they are much shyer when building than at other times. No doubt they worked mostly in the morning, having the early hours all to themselves. Another pair of blue grosbeaks built in a graveyard within the city limits. The nest was placed in a low bush, and the male continued to sing at intervals till the young were ready to fly. The song of this bird is a rapid, intricate warble, like that of the indigo bird, though stronger and louder. Indeed, these two birds so much resemble each other in color, form, manner, voice, and general habits that, were it not for the difference in size, the grosbeak being nearly as large again as the indigo bird, it would be a hard matter to tell them apart. The females of both species are clad in the same reddish-brown suits. So are the young the first season. Of course in the deep, primitive woods also are nests. But how rarely we find them. The simple art of the bird consists in choosing common, neutral-tinted material, as moss, dry leaves, twigs, and various odds and ends, and placing the structure on a convenient branch, where it blends in color with its surroundings. But how consummate is this art? and how skillfully is the nest concealed, we occasionally light upon it, but who, unaided by the movements of the bird, could find it out, during the present season, I went to the woods nearly every day for a fortnight, without making any disc, 